Well, good morning. Okay, so uh, we're in the middle of, uh, or not the middle, we're at the end of our section on bibliology and hermeneutics. Again, bibliology, uh, what is the Bible, study of the Bible itself, and, uh, and so all of the attributes of Scripture that we've talked about, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, necessity, clarity, all those kinds of things we talked about in bibliology the first half of the semester. And then the second half, we've been talking about hermeneutics, that is, how do we interpret uh, the Bible. And, uh, and so the past few weeks, we've been walking through this process of observation, interpretation, and application. And what we want to do this week is kind of put those all together, give uh, some helpful sort of Bible study tools to think through, also just some tools uh, that you can use to help your interpretation of the Scripture. And, uh, and so that's what we're talking about today. And uh, as we get started, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of interact with each other, kind of get the brain going a little bit. And so get in a group of at least two, uh, as many as four. And uh, so two to four people and uh, work through that first discussion question on your handout. Everybody's familiar with Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear, hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I want you to work through two questions. First, should this verse be used as a promise for America? Why or why not? And then secondly, in what sense can we, uh, as 21st century Americans, in what sense can we apply this? What is an application that we can make from this? So should this verse be used as a promise for America? Why or why not? And then in what sense can we apply it? And so take about five minutes or so and, uh, and discuss that. All right, let's work through some of this uh, together. So uh, question number one, should this verse be used as a promise for America? No, all right. Okay, why or why not? Why not? Because we're not humble. <laughs> <laughs> Neither was Israel, but God still made the promise to them. Uh, who, who are the people that Second uh, Chronicles is addressing? Israel, right? The nation of Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, uh, which is not America, right? There's not a one-to-one correlation between Israel and America, no matter what you might or might not have learned in your U.S. history class or something like that. What about uh, the land? What land is it referring to? Israel, all right? Uh, the sort of the boundaries of uh, there in, uh, in the Middle East, and so bounded by the uh, sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and all these sorts of area. And, uh, and so, again, we don't make a one-to-one correlation unless you're Mormon or something like that and you're secretly kind of spied out uh, this uh, promised land of America or something like that. So, again, we don't make a one-to-one uh, correlation. What's the context? Verse 13, what's going on? Yeah, it's, it's famine and pestilence. You're under God's judgment already. And, uh, and then what's the, uh, what's the overarching context? What's happening in the first part of Second Chronicles chapter 7? The dedication of the temple, right? So Jesus is, or, or God here is being very specific in saying, if you pl- pray in this place, toward this place, now do Christians pl- pray toward a particular place? Now what is our temple? 
Jesus, right? We pray in Jesus' name. We pray direct our prayers uh, towards Jesus, through Jesus, and so forth. And so, uh, so there, again, there's not this one-to-one correlation, but there is some correlation. And so in what sense could we uh, apply this in our context? Yeah. So you, you use this as a, an encouragement uh, to prayer. It shows us something of God's character that is universally true. Although the, the uh, identity of his people has changed in some sense, uh, the attribute of God is always toward that he looks toward those uh, who are repentant and humble and so forth. So it's an encouragement to prayer. It's an uh, encouragement uh, to humility. It's an encouragement as we pray to now pray, directing our prayers towards the new temple, which is not a physical place, but a person, uh, Jesus Christ and so forth. And so that was just to kind of get us started uh, what I want to do uh, this morning is I want to walk through kind of a process. So we've, we've kind of had the, the various pieces of the puzzle. I want to kind of put them all together uh, this morning and talk about from the, the time that you first begin to start to try to study the Bible uh, all the way through the process. What does that actually look like? Uh, and then I want to spend my, uh, our, uh, the bulk of our time at the end kind of working through another question uh, together and giving you uh, some questions to kind of prompt you and so forth. And so uh, let's, uh, let's kind of talk through this process of how to study uh, the Bible. There are some introductory questions that I think are really helpful for you in regards to establishing a plan. Uh, so who here would really love to work out but doesn't really work out, Right? I put myself on that list. I'd love to work out like three times a week, and I generally make it about once a week or something like that. A lot of times what happens is I don't have a plan, right? I think at some point there's going to be time that opens up in my day magically, and, uh, and all of a sudden instead of having 24 hours, I'm going to have 26 hours or whatever it might be. That doesn't tend to happen. I work out on days that I plan to work out. In the same way, I read the Bible Whenever I plan to read the Bible, if I just wait for this sort of mysterious opening of my schedule, it doesn't have it, right? I'm a pastor. I have friends. I have a community group. I have a family with a newborn relatively and so forth. All of these different things, you guys have the same sorts of pressures in your life as well. And so having a plan is going to really help you moving forward. And so let's talk about some of those questions. I think one of the first questions you should ask is, when will you read? Now, you might have grown up in a context where there was a very sort of a law, legal sort of mandate that you have to read in the morning. That's when I tend to read. Uh, that's when I tend to, to feel like my mind is the most alive and fresh uh, and so forth. But there's no mandate from Scripture. There's certainly uh, some psalms and so forth that talks about the psalmist getting up in the morning, but that's not a command for you. I had a, a roommate whenever I first got saved, and he just really, really loved to study the Scriptures late at night after everybody had gone to sleep. That's if you read uh, the biography of Hudson Taylor, that's what uh, he used to do. He used to wait till all of his kids were asleep, and then he would light a match, and, uh, and so oftentimes the kids, the last thing that they remember hearing before they drifted off to sleep was the lighting of a match so he could light a lamp so he could study there, because it was the only time that he knew he would get uninterrupted uh, time with the Lord and so forth. So there's no law or rule that says you have to do it uh, in the morning, uh, but uh, the important thing is that you have some sort of plan. You have a plan, a schedule, uh, and so forth. Uh, don't wait for the time uh, to read. You've got to create that time. 
So when I was in college, and I, not in college, whenever I first got saved and working in the corporate world, my time was my lunch break. And so we had a bunch of empty offices, corner offices there uh, in my office building up on the 20th floor. And so I liked to just read and look over downtown Dallas, and, uh, and that worked for me. Uh, and then as I moved on from that job and moved into seminary and so forth, then I had to find a new time because I didn't have access to a corner office and so forth. And so uh, the first thing is just when will you read? Having some sort of plan for that, whether it's morning or evening or lunch or whatever it might be, uh, is going to be important. Second thing, where will you read? Do you have a kind of favorite place? Is there a, a certain place uh, in your house that you like to get to? Uh, maybe you have an office. Maybe you have a, a favorite sort of sitting chair. Maybe you like to read in bed. It doesn't matter. Just uh, kind of thinking through that and thinking through the distractions of that. And, uh, and so some people read best whenever they're surrounded by people. Some people read best whenever they're in a Starbucks or something like that. Other people uh, won't get anything read because they get too easily distracted. They're ADD and, uh, and they, it's like squirrel, you know, and they kind of, all their attention is, is directed towards uh, whatever is happening in the moment. But, uh, but other people aren't like that. Other people need that sort of uh, ambient background noise. And so asking yourself that question, I think, is helpful. So when will you read? Where will you read? What will you read? Um, and so that includes things like translation. What translation are you going to read from? If you weren't here for uh, the audio on uh, April 2nd, uh, when we talked about which translations uh, that we would prefer and so forth, then I'd encourage you to go and uh, download that and listen to it. In general, we use the ESV here because it tends to be uh, a more word-for-word sort of translation. Uh, and, uh, and so, what translation, and then also just so, sort of reading plan. Do you have some sort of plan to attack Scripture? You don't have to use the same plan as anybody else in your family or in your life or so forth, although you might want to do it with community. Um, but uh, probably the best bet is not to do kind of willy-nilly, just pick up the Bible, open it, and one day you're in John, and the next day you just happen to open to Second Chronicles, and the next day you open to Romans, and the next day uh, you're in Nehemiah or whatever it might be. There should be some sort of a, a, a systematic, orderly approach to reading the Scripture so that you're learning from previous days and so forth. There's a, uh, there's a post on our blog, by the way, on Bible reading plans that we posted back in uh, December, December 22nd. Uh, of last year. And so if you want some options uh, that'll help you kind of with a Bible reading plan, I'd encourage you to check out that blog. Next question, how will you read? And what I mean by that is, uh, are you going to kind of devote yourself to just reading the Scripture, or are you going to devote yourself to studying Scripture? And both have their time and both have their place. And so I'm not going to commend one more than the other. Uh, in general, I would rather you be studying, uh, like if you were to tell me you spent all of 2017 just studying the book of Ephesians, uh, I would be super encouraged by that. I think in general, that's better for most of us than just reading the entire Bible uh, or something like that. Uh, now, I think if you've never read the entire Bible, I would encourage you to, uh, to do that. But uh, kind of how will you read? It's kind of like um, I, I think of the... Uh, the first time that you go someplace, let's say you go to vacation and, uh, and you go to Disney World or Disneyland or whatever it might be, the first time you kind of want to see everything, right? 
And then the next time, if you go again, you kind of take a more sort of restrictive approach. You, you've already learned the things that you like and don't like and so forth. Uh, likewise with reading the Bible. If you've never read through the whole thing, I'd encourage you to do that. But then in future times, you just get to go a little bit more slowly. Slow down, methodically, kind of chewing on the material, uh, taking your time. Uh, and so forth. So that's how will you read. Are you going to devote that time to just reading through the Scripture? Are you going to devote yourself to really studying it, working through all of these steps in, uh, in the process? Next question, do you have everything that you're going to, uh, to need? And uh, so let me give you just a few sort of tools that I think are helpful uh, for you. Uh, first off, having a pen I think is, is helpful. I, I know that we tend to be a, uh, a more uh, sort of electronic society. Uh, Wade gets mad at me if I print out elder meetings notes and so forth. He wants everything uh, to be electronic. Uh, and I think that's great. Uh, in general, I prefer things to be electronic. There are certain things, though, that I don't like to be electronic. And in particular for me, that's, uh, I don't like to generally study the Scripture uh, that way. It's just more helpful for me to engage. I'm kind of a tactile learner. That's why I'm always walking around also whenever I teach and so forth. I tend to be a tactile person, I think, whenever I move. So having a pen in my hand helps me to underline and circle and those kinds of things. Feel free to mark up your Bible. If you've ever grown up in a context where, like, the Bible was sacred, that's a good thing. But if you grew up in a context where the Bible is sacred and, therefore, you can't ever touch it, that's a bad thing. The book is not sacred. The words of God are sacred. And so circle it, underline it, highlight it, and so forth. There's a really good Bible highlighter. If you've never seen one, it's called Zebrite, Z-E-B-R-I-T-E. You ever used a normal highlighter on a page of the Bible? And then the other side is highlighted as well. Uh, And so Zebrite is a, a very thin one that allows you to highlight just one side and so forth. So have a pen, a Bible highlighter. I think it's helpful to have a little piece of paper a journal, whatever it might be. Uh, I find, so I tend to do all of my tasks uh, in my uh, phone. I have a little task uh, reminder sort of uh, app in my phone. I put things in there. I don't use that whenever I'm reading the Bible. The reason is because if I get on my phone, I transition my attention to that, then I'm tempted to check my email. I'm tempted to check and see what's happening in the news. I'm tempted to check Twitter or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so it's a way just to kind of move away from that. Um, and, uh, and so kind of, uh, kind of recognizing the inherent human weakness uh, toward being distraction. Uh, there was a, um, a quote by Hudson Taylor to mention him again. He said, some, he said this, Satan will always find something uh, to do when you ought to be occupied about studying Scripture if it is only arranging a window blind. Satan will always find something to do when you ought to be occupied about studying Scripture if it is only arranging a window blind. Anyone ever experienced that? Anyone ever uh, all of a sudden had this rush of, oh, I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this, whenever you're sitting down to read uh, Scripture and so forth? Now, there's an element in which that's just human nature. Your mind's kind of a little bit more free because you're not doing, 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 doing. There's also an element in there where there's probably some spiritual attack. There is nothing that the enemy dislikes more than the Word of God. What's the very essence of, of sin in Genesis? What's the very first four words that the enemy says? Does anybody remember? Did God actually say, right? So the very first words that we hear from the enemy are an attack on the very Word of God. And so he has uh, no interest 
and you actually being engaged uh, and so forth. His interest is for you to be distracted. I think he'd be fine with you reading Scripture as long as you're not engaged. And you ever read an entire paragraph or whatever it might be and realize, I don't know what I just read. Literally, I just, I'm checked out. I'm thinking about something else. And, uh, and so, kind of having these sort of things, whether it's technology is a crutch for you and, and is a distraction for you, remove yourself from that. Put your phone uh, far away. Get that one hour of the day or 30 minutes or whatever it is where your phone's just completely out of touch. You have everything turned off. You're not paying attention to it. Uh, grab a cup of coffee or whatever it might be that you uh, like to, uh, to drink and then get someplace where you can be just undisturbed, which for some of us, with kids and so forth is uh, exceedingly difficult, um, but uh, you want to be someplace where you can really engage. Uh, there's going to be, throughout the process, there should be constant prayer. Pray for the Lord. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word. What step of the Bible study process is that? Let's talk about observation, interpretation, application. What are you praying the Lord would help you to do? Open my eyes. Observation, right? And then uh, the, the Scripture commends uh, the Lord's work, the Spirit's work in illumination, which is interpretation. And then you're asking the Lord, help me to apply these things. So all throughout the process, there is this call back to prayer, to prayer, to prayer, to prayer. And so being uh, alone. I love the story of Susanna Wesley, the, the mother of Methodism, the, the mother of John Wesley. And, uh, and she had, I think, 19 kids, uh, something like 19 kids. And, uh, and so her way of getting alone just for a little bit of time in order to engage the Lord was she would take her apron and she would just put it over her head in the middle of the room. And the kids knew when that is going on, mom is not to be disturbed. Unless like your arm has fallen off or something like that, you are not to be disturbing mom. That was the only time, didn't have a place that she could get away. Uh, that was the only time and only way that she could really get away and en- engage the Lord. I like to imagine, I don't know what it's like under that apron, but I like to imagine she's got some like a little f- match under there or something, and uh, she's just thinking and praying and reading and so forth, and uh, probably just chewing on a verse at a time, I imagine with 19 kids running around. Many of them had passed away in infancy and so forth, so I don't, she didn't have that many at one time, but, um, but anyway... Uh, that's just an encouragement to me. As my life gets more hectic, as your life gets more hectic, I think we can all agree it's not as hectic as a mom living, you know, 250 years ago with 19 kids. And uh, so if she can do it, we can do it. It might not be you don't get hours like you used to, but 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it might be. Um, so you've done all of these sort of things. You have a time, you have a place, uh, you have a kind of a plan uh, you have all of the, the, uh, the sort of tools that you need. You have a, a calendar there that you can write stuff on or a journal or whatever it might be, and, uh, and you're ready to go. Uh, what do you do? You read. You read it once. You read it twice. You read it three times, kind of over and over and over again. I talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, which uh, there was a, a pastor, um, and, uh, and he said, he had this quote, and he said, when I read this passage 100 times, then it finally came to me. And uh, same sort of idea of Luther talking about uh, the kind of the impetus for the Reformation. And he said, I grabbed hold of Paul, and I would not let him go until he told me what he meant by the righteousness of God uh, in, uh, in Romans chapter 1, where the, uh, the gospel 
uh, and, uh, and, and the message of justification is, is the, the power of God for salvation. And so that sort of idea, don't just read it once, read it twice and three times and four times, and five, however many it takes until you really begin to, to feel it and it, it begins to take residence uh, in your heart. And then you begin to work on uh, observation. What do I see? And, we're, and we've talked before about the greatest danger to Bible study, the greatest danger to Bible study is speculation. It's assumption. It's assuming that something's there that's not there. Uh, we talked about this before. Uh, you read, uh, you assume when you go to the story of uh, Paul's conversion, you assume that Paul's on a horse, right? Everybody assumes that. There's no mention of a horse or a donkey or anything else just as Paul falls to the ground. But we have seen medieval art and so forth that shows him falling off a horse, and so we just think that. We assume, if I say Humpty Dumpty, you assume it's an egg, but it doesn't say that in the actual nursery rhyme. And so we have all these assumptions, we bring them into the text, and that's going to not only affect observation, but interpretation and application as well. And, uh, and so when you're doing the work of uh, observation, you want to uh, really be working on what is actually there. What do I actually see there uh, in uh, the text? You can make observations in your head. You can write them down if you want. That's why it's helpful to maybe have a journal and you can just write down different things that you observe, uh, depending on how much time you want to devote to it. I mean, you could literally devote hours to just observation. Uh, we did an exercise whenever we talked about observation here where we took a verse of Scripture and we just made as many observations as we could in like 10 minutes. And that particular verse, I think we probably collectively came up with about 30 or so observations in all of our groups. And I uh, talked about my professor who uh, had used that verse as, a, as an exercise and observation, had come up with like 325 or something in his uh, uh, 40, 50 years of, uh, of ministry. And, uh, and so uh, you could literally spend uh, a uh, nearly infinite amount of time working through observation. At some point, though, you want to stop doing observation and you want to begin to think about, what does this mean? What are, I, I have all of these clues. Uh, what does it mean now? That's the work of interpretation, right? We talked about how sometimes we make observations and we uh, speculate as to what that um, interpretation means. So, for instance, if I, if I don't have a wedding ring and you don't know me, you might assume that I'm not married, but that is obviously not correct. Maybe I just forgot it that morning. Maybe uh, my finger was swollen. Maybe who knows what it uh, might have been. But there are all these different reasons that your observation leading to your interpretation could be incorrect. But observations, what do I see? Interpretation, what does it mean? And uh, so I want to talk about a few of these sort of tools that will help you in the work of observation. And so I don't want to overwhelm you with resources. Uh, in general, you can get by with just a handful of, uh, of resources, but, but I want to give you kind of uh, a fountain of resources, and, uh, and then you'll apply it in different ways. So if you're preparing for pastoral ministry, that's your goal in life, you're obviously going to need a lot more of these tools uh, uh, and, uh, than someone who's just simply uh, desiring to be a faithful believer and loves God's Word and so forth. And so... Uh, feel free to use whatever of these are helpful. Let me give you a, a, a first a, a helpful sort of caution. As with any tool, there can be an over-reliance on that tool, right? Uh, if I were to ask you to do long division right now, who here would be like, I'm not 100% certain that I still remember how to do that? Right? At some point, we all knew how to do it, 
right? At some point you learned it, but now what do you do? You just get out a calculator, right? And you don't even have to, to you know, carry around a calculator in a pocket protector or something like that. You have it in your pocket. Everybody's phone has a calculator uh, today. And so w- w- the more that you rely upon a tool, the less that you uh, kind of know the underlying function of that. And so there's a danger in using any of these sort of tools. And uh, so I just want to, us to be aware of them. They're, they're good, they're helpful, uh, and so forth, but uh, can also present some sort of danger for us. Let me give you a few of those uh, tools. The first one is the ESV app. This is free. You can download that if you have an iPhone, if you have an iPad, if you have an Android device, you can access the official ESV app. That's the one that I would encourage you to look at. There are other versions out there and so forth, but if you just type in ESV app in the App Store, whatever it might be, uh, then you can access that. Here's some advantages of that. First, it's the preferred translation uh, that we preach and teach out of, so it kind of uh, will tether your study to uh, the text that we're actually preaching and teaching on. Second one, it's free, which is always helpful. Uh, Third, you have access uh, in that to all kinds of Bible reading plans, and, uh, and so you don't have to go create your own. You don't have to read the blog that I wrote and come up with one. They have them actually embedded into the app. You can just click on one, subscribe to it, and then every day it'll open to the actual place that you want to go. It also has access to audio. And, uh, and so uh, maybe you're a, a slow reader or maybe you uh, do some long-haul driving or something like that, and, uh, and you have just uh, tons of time on your hands. Uh, but you don't have time to actually read, read, and, uh, and so you, you can have an, uh, access to uh, audio. You just press a little button, and it'll just uh, read out uh, for you uh, whatever's there. And, uh, and then also, you can create a free Crossway. That's the publisher of the ESV. You can create a free account that will then track it between various devices. So let's say you're reading it on your phone one day because you have a really early meeting, and you're sitting there a little bit early, and then you leave off halfway through the reading, and then you want to pick up on your iPad uh, later in the day, you could do that. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's a helpful uh, uh, device. Second thing that I would recommend in addition to that would be an ESV study Bible. We are uh, we're working on trying to, to create at some point an opportunity for us to get like new members of the church and so forth at one of these ESV study Bibles. I think this is probably the best just single solitary resource that you can have. So if you don't have one of these, you can get one of these paperback versions or so forth for relatively uh, cheap. There are a number of other ESV study Bibles. There's an ESV Reformation study Bible uh, and so forth. But this one, just it's just called the ESV study Bible, looks like this. Uh, I think is the single greatest uh, just kind of solitary, compact resource uh, that you can have. It's got uh, not only the normal sort of maps that you might have, but it's got a picture. I was looking today, even in the Second Chronicles uh, chapter 7, right before that, a couple pages before that, has a picture of the entire temple complex. So if you've ever like wondered where are the various arches and the doorways and the vestibules and all that kind of stuff, it's got a diagram uh, there. It's all professionally done, and it's done by scholars who generally align with where we align on some of our theological distinctives here at uh, Parkway. So, encourage you uh, to get that. If you get that, you can also have access to 
uh, an online uh, account that will allow you then to access the, uh, all of the study notes and so forth uh, there. And so in addition to maps and graphics and, uh, and study notes, kind of like a running commentary, uh, it also has these really uh, helpful articles in the back. So maybe you're having a discussion with someone who's a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or something, and you want to know, okay, what are, what are some ways that we can really tackle the issue of the, uh, the deity of Christ or so forth? There's an entire article on that in the back. There's an article about textual criticism, which we've talked about here in this class. There's a, all of these sort of helpful articles. And so, again, I, I think it's just a really, really uh, helpful resource for you. So in addition to the ESV Study Bible, you could also uh, use a concordance, which nobody uses a concordance now. Why not? What's a concordance? A concordance is a, uh, a sort of a, a, a resource that has a word and then has every usage of that word, right? Why in today's 21st century might that not be the best thing to spend your money on? You can just search, right, right, Cause, because of Google, right? Now you can just Google search those kinds of things. So I wouldn't spend money on a concordance because of the exact, all it does is just search. So 60 years ago, would a concordance have been an invaluable tool for Bible study? Absolutely. Uh, but uh, today, it's not as helpful. Now, this speaks to the issue of translation as well. All right, and so we talked before about how uh, your your ability to lean into the English text is only as great as that English text. All right, and so if you're reading uh, a version uh, of Scripture that's going to be play a little bit loose with the original Greek or Hebrew, then your opportunities to study are going to fail. And so, for instance, if you were looking up all of the uses of the word fear in the NIV, there's one we talked about this. Whenever we talked about translations, there's one that is notably missing. In Hebrews, it talks about let us fear, whereas uh, in the NIV, it says let us be careful, which is a different sort of concept. So if you're looking up the word fear in an NIV concordance, you're not going to find that. And so you would want to look up something that is related to the ESV, um, but again, uh, in today's culture, uh, that's just not a, uh, a really helpful tool. Bible dictionaries, uh, which are, um, uh, they can be really helpful, but all they're going to do is just give you the definition of the English word, right? But what you're, what you're not as interested in is, is what the English word says. You want to know really what, what the original Greek word says, and so those can be helpful, but really what you would want more than a Bible dictionary is what's called a lexicon, right? So I have a, I brought a couple of lexicons uh, here. Uh, this is the down here is the uh, kind of probably best Greek lexicon, and then these, uh, that's one volume, one set, uh, is probably the best Hebrew lexicon. A lexicon is just giving you a range of meaning, all right? And so if you, uh, you want to know what does this particular uh, Greek word mean, you look in a lexicon, it gives you a range of meaning. It doesn't tell you what it means, right? Just like a dictionary technically doesn't tell you what a word means. We know that, Right? So if I say, what does the word trunk mean? You have to ask what question? In what context, right? It doesn't mean a bathing suit. It doesn't mean an elephant's nose. It doesn't mean any of those things. It can mean them depending upon the context. What a lexicon is doing is it's giving you the, what's called the semantic range. 
It can mean this, 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 depending upon uh, the context in which uh, you find it. And, uh, and so the problem with this is if you don't know the language very well, uh, so uh, it's like if you take, no one is worse at Greek than someone who's taken one semester of Greek, right? Once you take five semesters or so forth, you get a little bit better. But literally, you, if you've never taken any Greek, are better than a first-year Greek student, all right? Because they think they know everything, all right? The problem is, language doesn't just function as a one-to-one correlation. I was looking up, I'm a quarter Japanese for those didn't, who didn't know, and so I, I enjoy the idiosyncrasies of Japanese culture. And I was looking up, you know, uh, the Japanese have kind of an obsession with cats, kitty-chan, uh, which is Hello Kitty. That's the, the official name of her and so forth. These are all the idioms involving cats. Now, if you were to look in a lexicon and just look up the words, you would get super confused is what the author's saying. To wear a cat on your head. To wear a cat on your head. Like if I were to ask you, what does that phrase mean in Japanese? You'd say, I don't know, some sort of a fashion statement or something like that. It means pretending to be nice and clawless while hiding your anger or aggression. So it's kind of to be a hypocrite. Willing to borrow a cat's paws. Willing to borrow a cat's paws means uh, you're so busy you'll take help from anyone. A cat's forehead is used for any sort of tiny space, so it's kind of a humble way to say, you know, come over to my house, it's a cat's forehead. In other words, it's tiny, it's small, it's humble, uh, and so forth. Lots of cat's uh, idioms. And so again, if you're just looking in a lexicon, if you're looking in a, uh, a lexicon, you look up the word cat, are you going to get the meaning of what the person said? No. Uh, and so there's a danger there, again, uh, but I want to I recommend that, especially if you uh, study Greek a little bit. Uh, those would be really helpful uh, for you. Uh, and then uh, some commentaries, all right? Commentaries are really helpful. Commentaries are just these, they can be scholarly or pastoral or whatever, uh, kind of running uh, comments on the text. Commentaries are comments on the text. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're the author's attempt to explain that text to you. Some of them are written from a very sort of scholarly, academic approach. Some of them are written kind of uh, from an expositor's approach, like in other words, how you would preach it. You have all different kinds of things. Let me just give you a couple of places, just if you, if you ever want to purchase commentaries, let me give you a website that will help uh, Everything that I, I say is going to have a disclaimer that some are going to be better than others, but bestcommentaries.com has a linking, and, uh, and in general, it's a really helpful website. And so uh, you go to bestcommentaries.com, you type in Romans, and it pulls up, and it has a list of 20 different commentaries ranked. And, uh, and so in general, I would say of their top five, I think three or four of them are probably the actual best. Um, but again, there are some that might not be as helpful. But that's a good website for you. Um, we, I, I put a list down there. Uh, Zach and I kind of worked through a list. And I have an example of each of them here that we would, uh, we would recommend. So feel free uh, at the end to come up here and thumb through them a little bit and look and see if that uh, is the type of writing or something you might be interested in. Let me give you a couple of helpful hints as it relates to commentaries if you... Uh, uh, decide to, to get some of these. And so first one, read critically. You're going to read critically. And so we're not Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic uh, position is that not only is Scripture inspired and inerrant, but so is the church. 
The church has an inspired, inerrant interpretation of Scripture. We don't believe that. We don't believe, so, so uh, you know, I think, I think Zach and Jerry are, are excellent expositors. I think in general, uh, whenever they preach a text and so forth, I think you should receive that, uh, and I think it's true and so forth, but I don't believe that either of them are inspired or inerrant. I don't believe that about myself, right? Zach's pretty angry back there. Uh, and so we don't, we don't believe that. And so read critically whenever you get to these uh, sorts of things. Uh, secondly, um, you know, I would encourage you to rent or borrow, you know, check out from a library or something like that. Go to DTS, go to uh, some other, you know, Southwestern or something, a seminary where they might have some of these. Uh, in general, these have a pretty short shelf life. And so there's, as there's ongoing uh, uh, research and that kind of stuff. People write their doctoral work on a particular verse or a phrase of Scripture that gets incorporated into later editions and so forth. So buying them might not be uh, the best uh, option unless you just have um, infinite funds or something like that. Uh, next, be careful with commentaries that cover the entire Bible. In general, it's better to get individual books. So get a book for Romans, get a book for Ephesians, get a book for First John or whatever it might be. Don't just get one particular book that covers everything. Uh, why? Because you're going to want someone who does their individual work within that particular book, right? So there are, uh, there are people who uh, would do really well in preaching the book of James, but they did their doctoral work in First John, all right? So you're more interested in what they think about 1 John because that's where all of their life has been poured into, all of their time and energy and, uh, and so forth. That's also why I wouldn't recommend, uh, for scholarly purposes, I wouldn't recommend you grabbing a pastor's um, commentary. All right? So I, I like uh, John MacArthur's uh, study Bible and so forth. I think that's a helpful resource, but it's not going to be as close to being scholarly and academic and accurate and so forth as someone who's done their doctoral work. So I brought an example of that also. Mark Dever, which it's actually really helpful. He's got a message of the Old Testament and a message of the New Testament, and so this has individual commentaries of every book, but you can see the difference between this is his entire New Testament and this is a smaller commentary on the book of James, all right? And so you can see you're just, you're losing some of the, the complexity, the intricacy, the robustness, and so forth. And so uh, to get books by guys who did their doctoral work in, uh, in that particular uh, uh, book. And, uh, and then lastly, use multiple ones, and so not just one, especially, so this, this section is more for those who are who feel called to pastoral ministry or something like that in preaching and teaching, or if you're uh, like just super passionate about teaching and you want to be, a, uh, you know, you just want to be the best community group leader you possibly can be and be able to answer all the questions that your group has and so forth, um, then you'd want to consult uh, various. Uh, and so there are some that we recommend, New, Inter New International Commentary on the Old Testament and the New International Commentary on the New Testament. Those are, that's a series. All of these are series. Uh, and so within that, you would have the New International Commentary on the New Testament version of James or John or whatever it might be. Word biblical commentaries, uh, in particular in their Old Testament research, is really helpful. Zondervan exegetical, Baker exegetical, Pillar 
and then uh, Tyndale New Testament commentaries. I think those are probably uh, the uh, the best ones. Those are the ones that we're using for our Ephesians series and so forth. So Zach and I have about four commentaries that we're sharing and uh, just kind of pass back and forth as we uh, prepare, and all four of them are on this list. In addition to commentaries, um, having some sort of Bible software uh, in light of the fact that everything now is... Um, is technologically advanced. Um, the two that I'd recommend, if you uh, if you have a, a Mac, then uh, Accordance or Logos. Uh, if you have um, a PC, then I would just recommend Logos. But uh, both of those are really good resources. Uh, any of these things, feel free to set up a meeting or something. If you want to see how Logos works, I'll sit down with you for an hour and walk you through that. Uh, Jerry uses Accordance, so if you get Accordance and you want to. Uh, a training on that or something, set up a meeting with Jerry, and he's happy to do that. And then um, in addition to all of those sorts of things, uh, community. Community is a, a tool that I think we in our Western isolationist, individualist uh, culture kind of miss out on. And so uh, the community group sort of uh, function to uh, to sit down over coffee with a guy in your group or a, uh, a lady in your group and to say, hey, I was reading my Bible and I thought about this. You ever thought about this? And you guys to wrestle with it back and forth is really helpful to do that with your family. You know, I, I know a lot of families who will have kind of their, they have their morning devotion and then at the evening for their kind of evening devotion, they kind of talk about something they read about in the morning. They read it in the morning, they chew on it throughout the day and then they talk about it with their kids at night, whatever it might be. And then lastly, uh, to utilize the resources of uh, pastors and uh, and elders and so forth uh, in your life, and uh, and to wrestle with those things with them. So, uh, community is an important part of the process. Um, and uh, and this is particularly important in light of just where our culture has gone. With every you notice, everybody today is an expert in everything on Twitter and so forth. Everybody's an expert in absolutely everything. We've talked about this before. That uh, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist, and he's not even a, a, a very scholarly one of those. And yet, people get his opinions on personal finance, and people get his opinions on foreign domestic or foreign policy or domestic policy or whatever uh, it might be. That's just how we tend to think of uh, these sorts of things. Everybody has an opinion, uh, and so forth. And so, bringing that into the community helps us. Not only with humility, for it says, maybe I don't see everything as I should. I need other people. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Uh, but it also kind of expands our opportunity uh, to see different things, different truths in God's word. And then lastly, uh, after interpretation, application. So let me give you four questions. Uh, Jerry taught on this last week. And uh, so you feel free to go back and listen to that audio uh, but four questions in general that I think would be helpful for you. You've worked through observation. You've worked through interpretation. You know what the text means. You know what it means to the original audience. You know Second Chronicles 7.14 does not apply directly to you, but you know there is a correlation that is there. So how do you apply that? Here's some questions. What does God want me to understand? What does God want me to understand about himself, about his dealings, uh, oftentimes, application is not something that you get up and go do. It's something that you simply rest in. You believe. One of the greatest applications of God's Word is simply believing that God is who He says He is, and He's done, done what He says He has done. Related to that, what does God want me to believe? What does God want me to desire? 
You ever think of desire as being an application to love something? Like you read a passage and you see uh, the way that the psalmist loves God's word or you see the way that Jesus loves his enemies. And an application from that is to recognize I don't love God's word that much. I don't love my enemies that much. And so you're praying for the Lord to change your affections and your feelings and your desires and so forth. What does God want me to desire? And then lastly, what does God want me to do? We tend to think of the last one only. When application comes, we tend to think of, okay, I need to, to do this particular thing. Do, 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 do. And uh, what we see in, uh, in Scripture, uh, a guy said it like this uh, at lunch the other day. We see in Scripture this pattern is uh, the gospel is God has done this, so therefore we do this. The done is first. God has done, so therefore we do. But then we go back to the done because even in our doing, we still fall short. And so God is gracious even in that. So that's application and then again prayer all along the way. So for our uh, next few moments, I want to do this. I want to do an exercise. So again, encourage you to get in a group, two to four people. And, uh, and I want you to work through John 21, 1 through 19. I want you to read that, uh, John 21, 1 through 19, and answer the following questions. So we'll take about five minutes for the application section, then we'll come back together, work through it, then about five minutes for the interpretation, and then uh, just a couple of minutes, two or three, for the application uh, section. And, uh, and so I will be available should any of these questions stump you or you not know where to go to find answers or so forth. I'll be available, and then Zach will also be kind of floating around uh, ethereally uh, in order to answer any questions. So just raise your hand if at any point you get stumped and you want some help. Uh, we'll help you with that. So right now, just work on observation. And, uh, and then we'll come back together, work through that, and then we'll move on to the next one and then the next one. So, observation, go. All right, I know you're still going, but uh, for the sake of time, let's, uh, let's kind of work through some of these together. So, again, the, the most common, uh, so the first one, the most common Greek word for fire is uh, pyre. And uh, so that's what you will most often see. That's not the word that's used here. Uh, the word that's used here is anthrakia, uh, which, uh, by the way, you wouldn't just know, obviously. Um, but uh, although Jerry knew off the top of his head because uh, he's wicked smart. And, uh, and so you could use something like this, reverse interlinear New Testament, which is going to give you the baseline ESV text. And then it's going to give you the corresponding Greek word. So you could buy a resource like this. That would be helpful for you. If you have Accordance or you have Logos or another Bible software that's going to do that, a Strong's Concordance kind of does that similar thing. Again, though, you want to be really careful, especially if you don't know the language, that you don't make associations that aren't intended uh, to be there. But it would at least give you the word. Talked about uh, root uh, fallacy uh, at one point, and we said... Uh, that you can't just take a word that's a modern word and read it back. And so whenever the, the Bible talks about dunamis is the power of God, uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, we get the word dynamite from that, but you don't read that back into it. Uh, it's not the dynamite of God. Uh, the language moves this way, not this way. And, uh, and so, or from your perspective, the other way. Um, and so likewise, this is not saying that he built an anthrax fire, Right? Although that is the word where we get the word anthrax. Anybody know why we get the word anthrax from anthrakia? 
because your skin turns black and it looks like charcoal. So that's actually why we get that, uh, that word. But that's the word that's used here. What is the, uh, uh, the, uh, the word that he uses there is charcoal fire. That was what I intended you to get from number two. Is that type of fire mentioned uh, anywhere else in the Bible? If so, yes. Where? John 18, all right? John 18. And, uh, and so you could have uh, learned that by uh, a good uh, sort of cross-reference in your Bible. If you have the ESV study Bible and you look on John 21, 9, it says charcoal fire, C, chapter 18, verse 18, um, uh, or a uh, lexicon or concordance or something like that. Or if you Google search charcoal fire in Bible, uh, you would have found uh, that reference. And, uh, and so John 18, what's happening in John 18, verse 18? Yeah. Yep. Peter is standing right there by uh, the fire. Are, are there other similarities between John 21 and John 18 that we see? Both are early morning. Yeah. What else? Yep. Yeah. Yep. There you go. Absolutely, yeah. So there's the three denials. There's the three uh, sort of um, restorations or renewals or whatever it might uh, be. There's a, a couple of other similarities that, uh, for the sake of time, we won't uh, walk through. But you should see there is some sort of similarity between the two. You're just, in this point, you're not saying, what is that similarity? You're just simply saying there are similarities. So all you're doing is making observations. So now, let's take a couple of minutes and work through some of those questions there in interpretation. So we've done observation. Now let's do some interpretation. So you got about five minutes for that, maybe a little less for the sake of time. Sorry. Okay, you need a lot more time to work through this uh, and uh, kind of be comprehensive but uh, so that we don't uh, infringe upon... Uh, service time. Uh, let's work, walk through it. So, uh, why do you think John might have used the word in both contexts? So, he uses pyre in John 15, and Revelation is filled with references to pyre. These are the only two uses of the word anthrakia. Uh, and so, uh, hopefully, you see there's probably some sort of relationship that he's trying to get us as the reader to clue in on. There's something that's happening in verse eight, or chapter 18 and chapter 21 that are similar. There's a correlation that exists uh, between the two. Uh, Joe mentioned another sort of similarity between uh, the two accounts and so forth. So what's the theological significance of what Jesus is doing in verses 9 through 14? How would you kind of describe that? This might be a hard one. So imagine you're Peter, right? Imagine you're Peter. And, uh, and you've just denied Jesus, right? How are you feeling? What are some of the things that you're feeling? Guilt, shame, and so forth, all right? Now, imagine you see Jesus, you're excited because you love him, and at the same time you're feeling guilt and shame, and then you all of a sudden smell that familiar charcoal scent. What does it remind you of? It reminds you of your denial of him, right? And so it's almost like Jesus is, in this section, he's recreating. By the way, this is my backup sermon. If, uh, 
Zach or, or Jerry ever calls me late at night and says, I can't go in the morning. So you're getting some of that. Uh, but he's recreating that moment, right? And, uh, and so all of the guilt and all the shame and so forth floods back in. So what's happening there in verses 15 through 17? What's Jesus doing to that guilt and shame? He's restoring him. He's removing the guilt and shame, right? You denied me three times, I'm affirming you three times and so forth. So it's, it's recreating, it's resetting the scene. It's early morning, there's a meal, all of these sorts of things that are similar to the night that Peter had uh, denied him. And, uh, and so as he had now experienced all this guilt and shame, now there is this opportunity for him to experience grace and forgiveness and love uh, and so forth. And then what does he say in verse 18? What does Jesus say in verse 18? You just got to just look down there and read it. That's fine. He says, when you were young, something, and then when you're old, what? Yeah, and he, he said this to refer to what? His death, right? His death, all right? Now, Peter, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking this. What if I deny him again? What has Jesus just said? You won't. You will be faithful to the end. So you see how even this uh, it, it seems like it's a weird sort of thing for Jesus to say, hey, I, I know you love me, you're going to die, right? That doesn't seem like loving. It seems like, oh, grace, 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 and by the way, you're going to die. It seems like wrath. It seems like anger. It seems like judgment. But when you understand it in the context, you understand this is actually God's grace. What's Peter's greatest fear in this moment? What if I do it again? I know myself. I'm up, down. I'm impetuous. And, uh, and so that's God's grace. So, uh, the meaning, let me read that real quick, and then we'll just talk about a couple of applications. We'll leave. Uh, meaning, this is how I wrote it. So you, you, as you're wrestling through this, I think it's helpful oftentimes to come up with a sentence or something. Think about, how could I tweet this? And so you kind of limit you to 140 characters or something. Oh, the mind's longer. Jesus reveals himself to the disciples and restores Peter by recreating the environment of his denial in order to remove the shame of his earlier denial and reassure and beckon him to sacrificial ministry. Jesus reveals himself to the disciples and restores Peter by recreating the environment of his denial in order to remove the shame and reassure and beckon him to sacrificial ministry. And then so what are, in light of this, what are some applications that you and I, we're not Peter, what are some applications you and I could take? Right, so this is a, it's an encouragement, it should be encouragement to you as you struggle with lingering sin and so forth, that you, you fail. We see that again with Peter in, uh, in Antioch. Peter is an apostle, and he falls again, right? He, he denies the gospel by failing to eat with Gentiles uh, and so forth. And so on and on. Applications, rest in Christ's love, rest in forgiveness. Uh, on and on we could go, some of the things that, uh, that Joe was talking about as well. So uh, kind of you have the process here. I hope that's, uh, that's helpful uh, so we will take a break for the, uh, the next month or so, allow just an opportunity for you to rest, whether that's sleeping in uh, or getting up early and working through some of the things that you've been talking about over the past uh, few months, and then we'll hit the ground running in uh, the first week of August. We'll be talking about the doctrine of God, who is God, what is he like, the attributes of God, and, uh, and so forth. So I hope that uh, encourages uh, you. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we will head off into sanctuary. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity for us to 
explore it and for us to, uh, to get an opportunity uh, to uh, wrestle with uh, some texts and uh, hopefully to be better prepared as we engage your word and have it engage our hearts and minds and, uh, and, and convict us and encourage us and all uh, of these sorts of things. I pray now as we uh, go forth from here into uh, the worship service, I ask that you would give uh, grace to Zach as he uh, preaches, proclaims your word today, that you would give us hearts that are receptive uh, and minds that are eager to learn and, uh, and lives that are eager uh, to apply the things that, uh, that you're revealing to us. And so uh, we love you. We want to love you more. Would you help us? Because you are good and you're worthy of our worship. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.